All right, welcome everybody to a new episode of Moscow Mules and Knob Slides. I'm one of your hosts, Kyle, and we have a special host this week, Dina. Hi, everyone. You might remember me from episode three, where we talked all about P-cert and ghosts, and I am back making a triumphant comeback to not, uh, Moscow Mules and Knob Slides. Happy to be here. And our guest of the week is Chris. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Pretty well. Great to be here. I appreciate you being here as well. And this is uh, comes via an introduction from uh, Brandon, or as I like to call him, uh, BC. Uh, BC threw over. He's like, hey, you got Chris on the podcast. I said, absolutely. Uh, we'll schedule that out. And I think we scheduled this out back in the summer, I think, timeline. You know, we've, we've trickled down in our, our podcast. Actually, Chris, this will be number 40. Uh, which I think is pretty impressive for uh, a bunch of people who just randomly decide one day to make a podcast and, and get it going and keep it going. But we Definitely. went from doing four a month down to one a month. So I, you know, we're at a nice consistent pace, but it's great to have you, Chris. Yeah, it's great to be here. I think that uh, uh, you're right. I think Brandon and I had spoken earlier in the summer and then uh, uh, I don't recall the exact verbiage, but something around, hey, we better schedule this a long way out. And I had thought, oh, maybe he's talking about three or four weeks or so. And then uh, like three, three months later, uh, here we are. But right. yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, kind of curious how exactly Brandon introduced me to end up getting a, uh, I figured that the introduction would have resulted in a, uh, a, a quick, no, you know, we're not interested in having you, but hey. <laughs> no, I'm, I always like meeting new people, especially via like, I always reach out. I mean, I'll do it to you when we're done. I'm like, hey, if you have any friends or colleagues or other people that you work in the field, you know, throw them my way because. A lot of this started as, you know, people we knew in our tight little circle of people we work with and expanded from there. And a few, you know, random shoots out this way of people like we had no idea, you know, just someone from Twitter, you know, someone introduced us via that way and boom, you know, like, so this is, you know, great because I don't have that, you know, that inside baseball knowledge about you. I can't like ask those, you know, weird questions that I know, but yep. so it actually makes it a lot more, I think, organic at times. Definitely, definitely. Well, uh, for those that are listening, you know, for the first time, number 40, what this podcast is really about is we have some drinks over uh, with a, uh, some cyber security or technical professionals. It doesn't have to be alcoholic beverages. It could be whatever the drinks are. We have people that like milk and orange juice and water, and that's all they drink. Um, you know, some people love tea. Some people just don't drink alcohol at all and just like to crush, you know, a gallon of water a day. All things are fine. We're just here to have a nice, fun conversation. But as a guest of the week, Chris... What are you sipping on this fine, fine evening? Yeah, so before we uh, uh, started recording here, I think I had mentioned to you that I had recently uh, driven across from New Hampshire out to Colorado and uh, uh, spent a bunch of time listening to the previous uh, podcast episodes. Uh, but part of the drive from New Hampshire to Colorado was also in, uh, oh, that might not show up very well on the camera, um, but uh, I also brought back a, uh, a pretty big cooler bag full of uh, New England uh, beer. So specifically today, what I have is I have a Hill Farmstead Edward, which is an American pale ale. Um, for those who are familiar with Hill Farmstead, they're a pretty good brewery in Vermont. Um, my parents have a house that's about 20 minutes away from Hill Farmstead. So I've had the privilege to be able to sample a lot of their beer. Um, and honestly, tonight, I am just hoping that uh, uh, I brought this back to Colorado two weeks ago. I think I bought it about a week before then. So I'm just hoping that 
it's still good. <laughs> is that what is that the brewery that has like the tree as on their glasses? Like on their glassware? Call a tree. There's like yeah. a uh, uh, it's kind of like an hour. I thought that it was like an hourglass with a kind of a wine glass inside of it. OK, um, I, I'll admit that I've seen a very small amount of their glassware, though. So my my sampling might not be representative of everything they offer. No, it's OK. I think there's another one from up that way that like the secondary market on these like brewery glasses is ridiculous, like one hundred dollars for like a, a fifteen dollar glass. So I thought maybe that was what the one it is. I, I remember going to Hill Farmstead, actually not going. It was driving by. Uh, it's very close to a town called Greensboro that has a really good general store. So we were going to the general store, driving by Hill Farmstead. And uh, it was like a Saturday. And um, I don't know how many dozens of cars were parked outside, all with Connecticut. New York plates, um, people driving up over the weekend and just loading their car full of beer from Hill Farmstead. Uh, pretty impressive stuff. But um, And then I, I guess the other thing that you guys are quite keen on is glassware. Uh, I can't say that the glass that I have today is probably what you're supposed to drink an American pale ale out of. But what I have is I have a, uh, um, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado. And Fort Collins is where New Belgium is headquartered. Yep. And uh, New Belgium has a program called the Cellar Club, which is uh, sort of an annual membership. Uh, uh, every single month, you get to sample some beers that they don't release to the general public. Um, and uh, they, it used to be this great monthly kind of physical get together, and then you'd hang out and drink these cool beers. Um, recently, that all, all, all changed, of course, over the last 18 months or so. Uh, but the glasses persist. So it's uh, it's just a cool glass that says New Belgium Cellar Club charter member on it. Um, and uh, I don't know, I try to save them for kind of special beer, which this would definitely qualify. Nice. So that's what I got. I'm going to open it. Let's see how the mic picks this up. Well, that's probably perfect. It's like a perfect. <laughs> <a> glorious. <laughs> yeah. It's like you've been practicing. I hate, yeah, there's a whole stack of empties over here that you can't see. <laughs> I mean, we had someone on the podcast. I'm not going to call him out, but he was like crushing icy lights throughout. Also, if you're listening, you know who I'm talking about. I was, I was impressed <laughs> by his stack by the time we were done. Well, as you pour that, uh, we'll come back. To, you can let us know how it, it tastes. Uh, Dina, what are you sipping on? Not that I don't know, but we'll, for the sake of the podcast. So today I am drinking a non-alcoholic drink. I am having some peppermint tea because my stomach has been not super friendly these last couple of days. I've also been watching a ton of Ted Lasso, hashtag Apple TV, please sponsor me. Um, and I agree with Ted Lasso that most tea is trash. Just throw it directly into the harbor. But this is just peppermint tea. That's a pretty fancy mug you're drinking out of right there. Oh yeah, in terms of glassware, Kyle bought me this mug. It is supposed to be me in the middle with our two dogs, Basil and Stark on either side, both of which are in my office right now. And I have a cat on me as well, who is not pictured in this mug, but that is what I am drinking from. Yeah, she was left off the mug this time, maybe next time. Do you drink uh, like uh, breakfast tea as well? I do not. I. Went through a phase where I was traveling a lot to Asia for work. So I got really into teas from Japan because I was I was going there and I spent some time in Kuala Lumpur where I would have tea time every day and I loved it. 
but mm -hmm. it's hard to find the same type of tea here in the United States. So I just kind of stay away from it. I'm typically a coffee drinker, but I really like mint tea and it helps my stomach. So it's a good, good option tonight. I was originally born in England. So I have a, uh, um, a ton of family over there. So the whole kind of English breakfast tea is a, uh, um, kind of a big deal, I guess. So it is. Yeah. I don't know if you watch Ted Lasso, but they talk about it. <laughs> it's a great show. It's it's an amazing show, really. Um, but they talk all about it, and it's set in London. And I've I've learned some things from that show as well. <laughs> Interesting. How's that? Uh, pale ale is it? Pale ale, American pale ale. American pale ale. We don't need to get into the specifics because I don't know enough about beer to be able to 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 talk about that. But it is good. <laughs> good news. The beer is good. So we're on the right track. That's uh, that's all that matters. Uh, well, you know, like the, the cans, I'll say, like, drink as soon as possible, like drink it fresh, stuff like that. I also brought home a bunch of beer from The Alchemist, which is another famous brewery in that neck of the woods. Yep. I mean, their, their cans are littered with statements to say, you need to drink this ASAP, right? So even if I feel like I have a pretty good sense for this is going to be good, ah, you know, especially when you drove like 30 hours and had to listen to a shit ton of podcasts to, to get the beer back here. I mean, you hope it's good, right? You do. You do it better hope be. <laughs> all your troubles were uh, worth it. Kyle, what are you drinking tonight? Yeah. So this is the last of the last one I have. And I think it was just kind of, I'm, I'm doing it and to put those vibes out in the air, the hope that, you know, um, they make these again, but this is, oh, I just had one of the dogs appear in my room. Um, this is from Cellarworks. Uh, I'm pretty sure I drank one of these on there before, but this is a uh, baked whip. So this is the last one. It's a cherry pie sour ale. Um, it's, it's such good beer. They make it about this time of year. They make three different types last year, like a, a blueberry buck or blackberry buckle type uh, beer, a peach cobbler, and then this cherry pie. So this is a, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to this one. It's the last of its kind. I have a fridge. I see you, but I'm busy in the podcast right now. Um, I'm drinking this out of, uh, since, you know, we're kind of in football season. I just got this glass the other day from former legends. It's uh, the primetime glass. So it has uh, Deion Sanders, uh, one of the old baseball cards, but he's like half in football equipment uh, and then half in a baseball uniform, obviously. One of those two great athletes like Bo Jackson that was a two-sport athlete. Um, but I just thought it was a good for football season type of, uh, you know, glass. And I like the glassware that comes out of former legends. They put out some really cool, you know, nostalgic baseball card, football card type uh, things. So like your beer, Chris, I hope this is good because I've had this since last fall. <laughs> so um, let's hope. Let's hope it is too. You know, you mentioned a buckle. I, I actually only recently found out that uh, uh, I think there's sort of, a, uh, this was not one of my planned topics, by the way, just so everybody is clear. I, uh, uh, it was only, I think like this year or last year that I, I read something that was somebody talking about a blueberry or some other fruit buckle. And I sort of went, what the hell is a buckle? And I realized it's sort of this regional reference to a specific dish that I, I just never encountered it before. Um, yeah, I mean, I get, I, I, I'd like to try one because I've never had something where the maker specifically stated this is a buckle. Um, but uh, I would think of it just like a, a cobbler, but this way, yeah, varies. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, I guess growing up in Ohio, that's what my mom called it. So yeah. that's what I, you know, when people are like, oh, I had a blueberry cobbler, I'm like, what is that? 
and I, you know, I mean, I don't know what a, I know what a peach cobbler was, but yeah, it was always a blueberry buckle, which I think is less, it's more cakey and less jammy. Uh, that's how I guess I, if I had to hmm. put it between two things. Um, if but, we ever get together in person, we will make you a blueberry buckle. That sounds like straight from the heart of Ohio. That's right. <laughs> Where blueberries actually grow really well because yeah. of like the valleys and how the, this, you know, well, in Southern, you know, what Eastern Ohio, but anyways, mm-hmm. less about the, the greatest state of them all. Uh, and more <laughs> about you, Chris, do you want to talk about a little bit how you got into the field? And then we'll, I know that wasn't on your list, but I always like to hear how it's the people's stories yeah, sure. of like how you got where you are. And I don't actually even know what you do. If you want to talk about that a little bit, if you don't want to talk about where you work, totally cool as well, but you can cover, you know, get a, you know, dance around it if you want. Yeah, um, I, I think what we'll say is that uh, I, I work in product cybersecurity for a large technology company. Um, and uh, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not here to represent my employer and anything I say is not a, a representative of my empo- employer's uh, opinions or beliefs, they're purely my own. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I basically work in a specific product line as a, a, a product security focus lead. Um, And my work kind of covers a pretty broad range, I guess. I I do a lot of uh, kind of practical, tactical, day-to-day vulnerability response type stuff. Um, Think of uh, 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 the people that are uh, kind of consume stuff from PCERT, if you will, internally, and then acting upon it depending on uh, impact to products. Hey, I uh, fellow product security nerds unite because it's a very small community and even smaller when you are dealing with PCERT things. So I tend to get very excited meeting others who have similar interests. Definitely, definitely. And then uh, I I guess in addition to that, I do a a large chunk of um, kind of forward looking, where, where do products need to go? What kind of capabilities do we need to have? Things of that nature. Um, so kind of a full, a, a full gamut, which is, uh, uh, maybe related to some of the stuff that we had identified as topics to talk about today. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, my, my journey, I think is probably similar to a lot of people where I started out doing, uh, basically just product engineering, um, n- nothing specifically security related, just kind of general stuff, right? You're looking at defects, you're working on, uh, uh, defect fixes, you're trying to, to figure out uh, uh, how to improve the product in the best way that you can to meet the needs of your customers. And uh, it, it then at some point, I, I distinctly remember that uh, Heartbleed happened. And uh, prior to that, I guess in university, I had taken a couple courses on uh, uh, cryptology and things like that. So I was familiar with uh, uh, crypt and, and things of that nature. I didn't have the math chops to really do it, but I was familiar enough that I knew that I enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, then Heartbleed happened and I was gainfully employed, no longer a, a student. And somebody sort of said, crap, you know, we kind of need to write a, uh, uh, some sort of advisory about this stuff. Right. And we, we kind of probably need to tell people, uh, what's going on with Heartbleed and, and things of that nature. And, um, I guess, however many years later, what was Heartbleed? Was that 2014, 20, somewhere 2013, in that, 2013, 2013, yeah. somewhere in that neck of the woods, um, here I am full-time uh, uh, doing not so much of that work anymore, maybe thankfully, because um, that, that work is pretty stressful. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, 
that's that's the story. I think it's probably similar to a lot of people where you start out doing something completely unrelated and somebody goes, ah, uh, shit, we need somebody who can talk about TLS or something. And then before you know it, you're uh, uh, knee deep in it, right? No, I mean, that makes sense. So that I think this is a nice segue. So you've spent a lot of time in product security. What are some of the things that might bother you about cybersecurity or some of your pet peeves, especially given the role that you're in on the product side? Well, I don't know about the role that I'm in, um, informing my pet peeves. I think the pet peeves are That's probably fine just because, <laughs> yeah, the pet peeves are probably just because I'm a um, I'm a punk or something. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, my, you know, <clears throat> so I, I was at a, um, well, maybe I'll just say the pet peeve first. So my biggest pet peeve, and, and I apologize because I know Brandon, um, uh, person I, I consider a friend as well as a colleague, um, he does this. So I apologize, Brandon, but this behavior bothers me. Um, uh, people who just say cyber, I don't know why, but that really, there's some part of my brain that's just like a greater when people just say cyber instead of even security or cybersecurity. I don't entirely understand why I have the reaction I do, but for some reason, that's a total pet peeve of mine. And it, I didn't really realize it until I was at a, uh, uh, an unnamed industry uh, conference in the DC area with a lot of representation from the, the federal space. And uh, uh, those particular, that, that particular group of people really loves using the term cyber. Uh, so I found out very quickly that uh, that was a particular pet peeve of mine. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I can laugh about it now, but that, that week was pretty brutal, I'll be honest. <laughs> Sounds like it. I know a lot of us in the field, especially those that have been in the field for longer than seven or eight years, I think a lot of us still refer to cybersecurity as information security and vice versa when I think a lot of other people really like using the word cyber, but I hear you. I hear you on that. I never, I, I have to think of whether I do that or not. I think I just say it all one word, cybersecurity, when I'm referring to it, but now I'm going to be thinking about it. <laughs> I'm going to think about it now too. But as you're, as you're sharing on the topic, I'll share one of my pet peeves that like, like tinges the back of my skull and makes me want to grind my teeth is when people say, O day when they mean zero day. Oh, yeah. I have a, I have a better one to add on to that. Not only do people talk about zero days, sometimes vendors, large vendors, uh, they will say a zero day in so far that there isn't a mitigation that's available for the issue when the true definition of a zero day is that the vendor doesn't know about the issue. So there's that as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, that's just like icing on the cake. But when someone's like, oh, there's O days, I'm like, oh, it's so bothersome. It just, it, you know, it hurts yeah, my I mean, soul that I don't have. I guess my mind must work in some sort of phonetical way because when you when you said O days, um, I started thinking about, well, how, how is that spelled? And it was like O-D-A-I-Z-E or something like that. Um, and it actually wasn't until you said zero day that I was like, oh, okay, that's what he's referencing. At first I was like, what the, like, what is that? I don't, and then, uh, so yeah, thankfully I haven't encountered that one, but I can, I can assure you that it would, uh, uh, result in a similar mental response on my end as well. Um, yeah. Makes me but want to die inside. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other pet peeves or can I go again? Please oh, let's oh, air these again. grievances. Yeah, let's go. We're, we're in the airing of grievances right now. Um, 
so I, I think the other one that, that, that kind of bothers me is that I think that, um, uh, generally speaking, I think absolutes are a bad thing. And I think that a lot of security professionals, um, really see this stuff or it, I shouldn't say see, I think a lot of security professionals, when it comes to providing guidance to a business or to their leadership around a path that should be taken, that in the, like, there's a million articles about how difficult it is to uh, come up with metrics around security, especially if you're talking about like product security or something of the sort, right? So in the face of the difficulty regarding metrics, right? Like, how can I quantify the reason why we should go do this thing? I have seen that a lot of people just fall back on absolutes, right? Like, this is the most secure path in terms of a solution to the problem that you're facing. Thus, it is the only path, right? And I, I guess the pet peeve that's buried in there, right, is this like idea that maybe uh, we need to collectively get better. The pet peeve is I probably just the uh, being so absolute about it. And then the, the action maybe is the collectively we need to get better at how do we message these things um, in a way that isn't just like the only path is the most secure path, right? Because when you're talking about that kind of decision-making, you're talking to people that like, I mean, they, they drink it, like they drink risk for breakfast, right? Like every decision they, they, they make is one of an immense amount of risk, right? Like there, there's no denying it, right? So you have to, like you have to kind of, uh, um, I don't think we're doing ourselves any favor if we can't figure out a way to articulate uh, maybe that risk and why we need to take a certain path um, with any sort of, uh, uh, maybe better fluency, if you will, than just kind of defaulting to, it's the most secure option. Does that make any sense or does that resonate? I, it, that resonates with me so much. I, I'm sitting here about to nod, my entire skull is about to fall off because I feel, I, this is my, my day today. And just as a corollary to that, I think that sometimes organizations want everything to be solved by the patch too. And there is a whole section of security issues where some sort of configuration change or some other sort of mitigation will actually solve the problem, but everybody is expecting a patch. And I think that the underlying assumption here is that a patch has to solve everything when in fact, that's not always the case if you think a little bit harder about a problem. And it drives me nuts <laughs> when you hear that because it, it, it's something similar when somebody's like, this is the most secure option, but you, you're not considering all of these other options because maybe it's not resulting in a patch, for example. But that doesn't mean that those other options aren't viable either. Yep. I can also go on and on about metrics. I, I once was in an organization that somebody at one of our customers when I was working there had asked like what the price of a CVE was and to actually put a dollar figure to that. And I, to this day, have trouble with that one because it's so different from organization to organization and impact to impact and exploitability makes a big difference too. So mm -hmm. those, I, just as a corollary to your 
grievances, these are a couple of my grievances. Well, it sounds like really almost what it is is a, is, is a dictionary. It sounds like there's kind of twofold, right? Like my second grievance is a behavior really, but there's also this dictionary aspect of like uh, certain words that uh, uh, start to produce a, um, irritation maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, so maybe you need the, the dictionary. These are the words you do not utter, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutes right. are always, even in normal life, you should never use absolutes because there's never, everything's not absolute. And I've gone through a lot of struggles with that, right? Like you always do this or, you know, don't, you never do that. You're like, that's, see, that's not always the case, right? You know, so yep. I think uh, there's a lot that comes with that. I mean, I learned a lot with like, even recently with like in the same realm of what you both are talking about, like using uh, assessments and not using weasel words and things like that to, you know, really drive home a point you're trying to say with some type of confidence behind it, right? Or lack of confidence or, you know, whatever it might be that sell those points without using, you know, weasel words that make it not understandable or, you know, second guess your statement that you're making. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the thing for me around this is just that like, uh, um, it, there's a, there's almost like the two uh, like the two hands right on on one hand as cybersecurity professionals you go attend any conference and you'll be able to or just informal meetup and you'll be able to find any number of discussions around I struggle for relevancy within my organization I have trouble getting the funding I need I have trouble getting the mind share that I need I don't know how to properly articulate. Uh, the risk to my business or why we need to take certain actions, right? Like I, I'm struggling to do these things, right? And then on the other hand, you have this, when given the opportunity, when you, like the, the only way you can articulate why you need to go do something is, oh, uh, well, it's the most secure path, right? Or it's the, like, it, it's the path with, with the least risk, but the highest cost or something, right? And if you try to look at anything that's in the slide or in the middle, right, between kind of no action to the, the like most costly, if you will, then things start to fumble. Um, there's a weird duality there, right? Where you're sort of like, well, you're, you're almost feeding off of your own, uh, uh, like, like you're almost creating this problem yourself, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean the same thing. I think the hardest thing for me nowadays is trying to say, this is what I need and this is why I need it. When you're like, when you've been told like, hey, we have, we have the funding, we have the resources. You're like, all right, well, I want this tool then, right? And I know it costs X amount of thousands of dollars a year, right? Yep. Or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. But if money's not a problem, we have funding for it how many use cases do I need to give you? And like, how many outcomes do I need, the requirements do I need to give you before like I get that stamp of approval, right? Like at the point in time where you needed that yesterday, like, or if you had it yesterday, your life would be so much better, right? There's a lot of that. Uh, and maybe that's just business to business and stuff like that. But I think we all, I think every time I hear about, oh, budgets this, budget that, when, you, when we all know, hopefully we, the three of us and anybody else listening, when we're, in those seats of our upper management someday, we can look back and be like, yeah, I get what they're trying to say. Maybe I don't need to give them the runaround that I feel like you get now when it's like, oh yeah, we need to put that in the budget next time. You're like, I needed it now. And you asked me what I wanted now. And I'm telling you what I want now. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's yeah. a lot of my problems. I uh, 
try to, to figure out how to do. So Chris, I have a question for you. So we've been talking about some of these grievances. Do you have any tips or tricks or any sort of solutions where we would like to see cybersecurity maybe go or how to better communicate these sorts of things? I'm interested in your perspective on maybe some solutions to these. Yeah, I mean, so I guess looking, thinking about making these things real and consumable, um, the perspective I'm thinking of is from a consumer, not from my current role, right, or your current role. What, what I'm thinking about is things like, um, uh, like, how do I explain to my parents why they need to use MFA for their banking accounts, right? That doesn't involve them reading some banking FAQ that they understand half the words of even as intelligent adults right like like why how, how do we collectively as security professionals um it like make it so that these things are uh maybe uh where the where the risk is in why you should do this thing is more immediately obvious and doesn't require like uh, uh, reading a whole bunch of articles or, or whatnot, um, or, or just make it so it's so ubiquitous that it's that there's no discussion around why do you have to do this thing, right? Um, it, I guess I, I find that really interesting because I, I've had a lot of uh, um, kind of engagements or encounters with people where, like the the idea of uh, why would you use unique passwords or why should I put MFA on these accounts or why should I do X Y Z why should I care about these things? Um, it's clear that whatever message we're providing, um, where we're is the uh, say application vendor that's that's writing the software being used by a bank, for example, um, and, and their consumers, there's some delta there, right? They, they like they, they're not getting the point. They see it as a Rather than seeing it as like, I'm doing this so that I don't either lose my identity, my life savings, what have you. They see it as like, like get this thing out of the way, right? Like this is a burden, this isn't helping me, which is what it's doing, right? I mean, it's helping the bank, let's be clear. It's also helping the bank, but it is also helping the consumer, right? The customer. Um, it feels like we don't do, to me, it feels like we don't do a great job of explaining how these things are real, right? Like the threat, how the threat is, is or the risk is real. Um, and, and also just sort of like explaining why the technical capability, like we can continue on the MFA example, right? How that addresses whatever the risk is, right? I, I don't know. Do you guys agree with that? Or do you think that this stuff is so commonplace now that people get it or? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> I think so. In security, I think there's a propensity sometimes for folks to be like, what do you mean you don't understand this? Right? Like, other humans need to be at the same caliber of technical expertise as them, and they tend to gloss over these issues. But for everyday people, I think understanding what's at stake is going to be the only thing that really moves the needle. So instead of it being a liability issue for the bank, right, the bank is trying to protect themselves or push risk onto somebody else, I think consumers need to be able to make an informed decision and to be able to understand why they're doing something. I think 
a lot of times we're missing that why and the information security community sometimes is very easy to be like, these people are idiots, blah, 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 blah. And that's not the right answer. It's kind of connected to what I was saying before, right? Where the answer is, because this is the most secure thing you need to go do, right? And the justification is, in this case, maybe the consumer of the justification isn't necessarily leadership. It's the actual customer, right? For why, why do I have to go do this thing that you're telling me I need to go do? But the essence is, is very similar, right? Like, how do you provide the justification for why you need to have some technical control, right? Mm-hmm. In a way that resonates and, with, with, the, uh, with the individual you're, you're trying to explain it to. And proactively too, right? Like here's a, a perfect example of MFA is that my grandmother's email account got compromised back in early springtime. And you know, I got one of the emails from this, someone logged into her account. And obviously I called her and stuff like that because it seemed very interesting. But like, then I had to explain to her as her friend was coming over to help her reset her password to set up like multi-factor authentication and have it like text you a next code. And I had to explain that to her, but that was retroactively. Like her account was already compromised for a period of time, ideally, hopefully nothing else. So she kind of understood the impact and why she should do that. Exactly. Right? She understands what's at risk because it just happened to her, right? She's like, oh, yeah. shit, this is why I need to go do it, right? But right. until that point, how do you relay the importance of doing these things? Um, uh, maybe what it is is that uh, uh, you need the bank to, to fake it, right? It's like, oh, all the money disappears. And, oh, my God, what's going on? This is why you enable MFA, right? <laughs> and, and Isn't that like scare tactic? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you're allowed to do that, just to be clear. But this is an evergreen problem, though, right? (laughs) Especially in this field. I I come from an incident response background, and everything is always this way. You really start getting traction in whatever your goals are, unfortunately, sometimes post-compromise, right? You're like, oh, you, you, any, whoever you're working for is like, oh, shit, like, well, okay, I get it now. And it's unfortunate, and I would love to figure out something where you don't necessarily have to get to that point right? Which is part of this conversation. Yeah. I mean, um, I was thinking about this conversation earlier today. And and what I was thinking about is that um, uh, er earlier this year, I got a new phone. And uh, when I got the new phone, one of the, uh, I don't know if this word is like trademark, but one of the gestures for navigating on the phone um, I did the air TM for anybody who can't see. That's right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It had changed from the phone I had before to the new phone, right? And for the first like two weeks, I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is really annoying, right? It was the, it was the back. The back used to be an arrow down to the bottom left. And now the back is like a thumb swipe, right? And um, to the left. And I, or actually, I don't even know. I think it's to the left. And um, I'm second guessing myself. That's okay. (laughs) We'll believe Um, but basically, after like two weeks, I someday realized that the, that it had just become ingrained muscle memory, right? Like what had really annoyed me when I first got this new phone, which I'd been very excited about, let's be clear, new phone day, even as like a mid-30s professional, right? It's still a big deal. You're still really pumped about a new phone. Um, especially now with the, like, uh, you're no longer, well, I don't know who your, your, your cell phone provider is, but you're not necessarily tied to like the, I have to wait a decade before I get a new phone, right? right? Like it's, it's like pretty, these days we're, we're living at large, right? You can get a new phone. <laughs> and, um, 
but you get the new phone, you unbox it. And then I'm like, oh, holy shit. I don't know how to navigate on this thing. Right. I don't know how to use this. Um, I would love, like, I guess to your comment, how do you get to a point where these kind of things become as second nature as navigating on your mobile device? Right. Like, I mean, that's maybe a, maybe I'm like too pie in the sky kind of thing. But I mean, is that the goal? I mean, there's a part of me that thinks that should be the goal. Right. Where these things just become so ingrained that you're like, oh, yeah, this is how this works. Right. Um, I don't know. Just a thought. Just a thought. No, I mean, I'm in no makes, position to act on that one. So, <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, though, because like you wonder how much it, it is in everybody's day's life. Like, I don't go around to even my, uh, you know, my father and, and my you know relatives hey have you enabled two-factor authentication on everything you know what <laughs> you i mean don't. like i have a yeah. paper pamphlet for that i can send you a copy if you need to print it out and share right it. like it's like I, it's like i just assume they did and that's you know because I like it goes back to that like <laughs> after nice someone you assume they did i just assume <laughs> yeah, everybody I did assume it <laughs> i just have glasses half full i guess i don't know but <laughs> also in the same thing like i wear like think of that t-shirt like i i can't fix your computer like that's what i feel like i want to wear around like <laughs> around family right like ever since really? like they found out you know 15 years ago when you could do stuff like oh can you replace my graphics card in my you know you know 30 year old desktop computer no i can't I'm yeah i get a lot of printer questions so oh man yeah it's it's eternal eternal yeah. Oh yeah. Never ends. Never ends. But yeah, I mean, I guess back to your point, it's like, uh, it, when will it, I, I mean, I hope it'll be as simple as a gesture one day. I mean, we don't even think about some of that stuff. You know, I couldn't tell you how to navigate my phone, explain it. Like you were like, Oh, is it to the right, to the left? You just know when you touch it, you do yeah. it and you it know works. What to do. You know what to do. It's like your, your fingers have their own mind. Right. So. Yep. Yep. Muscle memory, I guess. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I don't, I don't know. To me, that seems like, um, I don't know how to get there, but if I, I much like you were talking about uh, your relatives, I mean, I've had, I had the, my grandmother, I think got her email compromised like eight years ago or something. And I, we still, it's still a problem, right? Trying to clean that mess up is still a problem. Right. And then uh, uh, my in-laws talking about security stuff with their email and you're like, I, I don't think that's how that works. I just don't <laughs> think that's how that works. I, I don't think your email providers set your passwords to be the same because you were both married. Like, I'm pretty sure that you did that. Uh, <laughs> like, cause they don't know. You're like, I were. can't tell, but. <laughs> I, I don't work there. I don't know for sure, but my hunch, strong hunch is that you did that, right? So I, I, I just, I, I would love if I would love for the future to go that direction, right? I have a, I have a three-year-old kid uh, and uh, that's some scary shit, man. Uh, thinking about what, what the, I mean, in all varieties, that's maybe a dark segue right there. But I mean, it, it, just thinking of like the, the uh, I look at um, having a kid. I don't know. Do you guys have kids? Um, you have dogs. So yeah, you have kids. Yeah, it's, basically, um, it's basically the same as yeah. someone who doesn't have kids i like to say it's basically the same so i'm sure that's offensive oh, no it's not offensive it's essentially the same right you just put some food and water on the floor and everything's good yeah and um <laughs> before child services come shows up on my doorstep that was a joke just for reference <laughs> and uh, yeah. um but uh uh i mean like I genuinely get scared about like, what is the kind of digital connected world going to look like 15 years from now, 10 years from now? 
when my kid is a, a, like kind of that teen, preteen, young adult age. Uh, that is really kind of terrifying to me, right? And anything of this nature that's like the understanding, the implications of the actions you're taking, um, that's some scary stuff. That's a bit of a segue from product security and MFA, but um, to me, they're kind of intertwined, right? There was that documentary that came out, I think it was on Netflix, about the impacts of the algorithms and how people are viewing themselves that it's really eroding down the confidence that kids and even adults used to have, right? Yeah. There's another one of my pet peeves, uh, the word curated. I hate that word. Uh, I, th I think it's I think it's applicable to social media, right? Because what you see is everyone's curated life, um, which I think is what what you're getting at with regards to. There's almost a, yeah. a, a uh, at least two layers there, right? There's the the layer of a human choosing what do I put on social media, and then the layer of uh, algorithmically what gets displayed to you when you're you, when you're interacting with that application, um, right? So there's there's a couple uh, uh, points of uh, uh, basically you wondering what the hell have I done with my life, right? I will tell you, this is very relevant. I've had to take several Twitter breaks because it's getting increasingly hard to interact with, with others in the information security community on Twitter, because at least, and I'm speaking only for myself, I, I look at all of the cool things that are going on and I'm like, am I not doing those cool things? Am I not working hard enough? Am I not doing this? Am I not doing that? And it's kind of, at least for me, I suffer with imposter syndrome. I think a lot of folks do. I was just talking to my VP GM about this literally yesterday, and we had a really good conversation about it. But do you think that the information secure, that this is, that being on Twitter all the time or being on social media all the time is helping or hurting imposter syndrome? Like, what are your thoughts on that? That's a really good question. Um, I think it definitely is, right? I mean, I, I don't, um, uh, I spend some time with the, with the kid, right? Uh, we share photos with relatives and stuff using some photo sharing social media applications of which you could probably guess what they are. Um, other than that, I don't do a whole lot of social media. I actually, I think the last time I used Twitter would have been uh, quite a while ago. Um, but, um, <laughs> maybe, maybe what I'm hearing is I shouldn't be in any rush to go use it. Um, which Absolutely is, good, but that's the, that's an interesting segue though, right? Is I have specifically thought about, do I need to get on Twitter? Like, am I missing something? Because I keep hearing about these conversations. I keep hearing about these conversations on Twitter and am I missing out? Yeah. Right. I mean, you right. get the impression that you are because you hear like, oh, like shit's happening on Twitter and I'm not there. So I better go. Uh, I better go see what's up. And then you go on Twitter and you're like, I don't know how the hell to use this. Um, you're like, but, this is a cesspool also. <laughs> yeah, right. It's also a cesspool, but I don't even know how to use the cesspool. But I, I totally, I, I basically to answer your question, yes, I think it does contribute, right? For me personally, I don't think so because I don't look at, I guess the only way that I would interact with security professionals and social media such that it would kind of influence imposter syndrome around work would be on LinkedIn. And yeah. I mean, th there's a whole interesting dynamic with LinkedIn and, and people sharing their accomplishments and stuff like that, where I think you certainly get the image of like, wow, this person's really doing a lot of cool stuff. I, I get the sense, at least noting that I just said, I don't use Twitter. My third party like feel 
is that it's not as strong on LinkedIn as Twitter that like on Twitter where these, these stronger live discussions that maybe the, in like diatribe, I'll call it a diatribe back and forth. You could also say the word dialogue back and forth, maybe like accentuates that feeling. Whereas LinkedIn is almost like point in time. Here's a thing I did. And then you never look at the comments on, I mean, it's like any other social media. Don't look at the comments on LinkedIn, right? Because it's just going to, it's, it's a cesspool just like everything else. But um, I don't know. I definitely think that if I were to uh, uh, look at like the people I graduated middle school with and I go look at LinkedIn, I'd be like, son of a bitch, I'm not doing a whole lot. Am I? Um, I don't, I don't feel so good about, about this, but then again, I, I am confident that they probably do the exact same thing, right? Yeah. They probably are on LinkedIn and they go, wow, uh, Chris is doing some interesting, well, I hope they do. This is what I, this is how I sleep. This is how I'm able to fall asleep, right? As They're they say, totally oh, going to listen. Some interesting work. <laughs> They're going to be like, Chris is on this really cool podcast. Look at all this cool stuff he's doing. <laughs> I, I that would be I, yeah that would be interesting to hear right because if that was if that's the case then it's just it's evidence that uh that you're exactly right right that that uh witnessing these things on social media kind of feeds into that but I, I the thing for me with imposter syndrome is you guys have probably seen the infographic right there's this like I I would say it's famous I don't know that it is famous but it's an infographic that is the domains of cybersecurity, right? And it's like this single picture and in the middle it says cybersecurity. We can say that it says uh, information security or whatever. You or prefer. cyber. If it says we cyber, no, we cyber. can't say cyber because then I can't use this as a reference. So it definitely doesn't, it definitely doesn't <laughs> say. A curated cyber for you. It's a curated, curated cyber meme. Oh God, yeah. Um, <laughs> but then it, it like sort of from the middle, it has these uh, connected bubbles that are all the different domains and then subdomains and like sub, sub, subdomains, right? And um, I don't know if you've seen this infographic, but it talks about like there's vulnerability response, there's product security, and then it kind of trickles from there. There's like the audit and compliance pieces and uh, like the privacy stuff and things like that, right? Um, but I think that there's kind of this like, it, when, you, when you work in cybersecurity, um, I think that nowadays people will find similar to the, uh, can you help me fix my printer, right? People will find, even in the professional environment, almost every conversation nowadays involves security in some way, shape, or form, right? Like almost every conversation, there's some element of, do we need to care about cybersecurity? Do we need to care about, for this specific design piece, do we need to care about authenticating this one component? Or do, like, what do we need to do here, right? It's, it's, there's proliferation across all aspects of product design and business and all this other kind of stuff, right? Um, and I think there's an interesting, I would call it duality there, right? Where on one hand, I think that uh, I am a firm believer in imposter syndrome. And what I mean by that is like, I think that if you don't get the sensation, at least the sensation I would associate with imposter syndrome, which is like the sensation I had when you said that I should come talk here, where I'm like, oh shit, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm qualified for that, right? Um, like if you don't, I firmly believe that if you don't get that sensation, then you're, you either probably think too highly of your own skill set, uh, <laughs> or alternately, you're not putting yourself in uncomfortable situations where you have to push yourself enough, right? That's my take on it. Um, at the same time, I think that, so, so 
generally imposter syndrome is not common to cybersecurity or anything of the sort. But it, at the same time, I think that um, you also, when you look at the different domains of cybersecurity, I think that you have to recognize that if your focus is on product security and what you really know well is vulnerability response across open source components or something, right? Um, you have to recognize that if somebody's like, well, could you help me choose the radius of barbed wire that I should put on top of the fence outside of our data center? And how like how tall do you think the machine gun nest should be like at the corners? Do you think that like 40 feet is high enough? Or like, I was hoping 30 because lumber is like really expensive right now. So if we could get away with 30, do you think that's still a good enough view, right? Like at some point you have to say, look, man, like I don't like, 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 uh, on one hand, imposter syndrome is a thing. On the other hand, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. And the right answer here is not for me to try to fake it, right? <laughs> and I think there's an interesting kind of duality there, right? Where, but there's part, like, where do you draw the line between like career development? Like, I don't like the phrase fake it till you make it, but kind of fake it till you make it. And then just like, no, not touching it, right? Like that's something that I don't know anything about. There's, there's not an opportunity there. I'm not gonna work on it, right? Does any of that make sense or resonate? Oh yeah, I think at least for me, for the imposter syndrome stuff, like I, I sit there, I've been in this field now for like 10 years and I'm like, what am I doing, <laughs> you know? Or like, what about, like, am I an expert in something? And at least for me, I'm, I'm always, I always want to be the dumbest person in the room. Like that's my goal because I want to constantly be challenged. So I feel that when you said that about imposter syndrome, I think, I think a lot of times, and I think social media plays into this too. Like you just assume that the person on the other side of the screen is like this expert <laughs> that mm -hmm. knows what they're doing all the time when being an adult is hard. And I think we're all just trying to like figure it out as we go, you know? Totally agree, totally agree. I mean, one point really quick, hopefully now coming on the podcast, you're like, hopefully you feel like you're way overqualified because you you, you are. <laughs> but, uh, no. No. but I mean, I know you no, mean like when I someone asks you to do something, right? I mean, I've had a lot of times asking people and they're like, yeah, I don't know if I like can be, on, like, I don't know what I'd talk about. I'm like, listen, it's a lot easier than you think to talk to the strangers about random shit you know of, of your interest that of, you know that you're interested in yeah i think if you're not experiencing a little bit of posture syndrome a little bit here and there every day yeah i don't think you're challenging yourself at times like where you look like you'll see a colleague who you think you compare yourself to it like in skill set wise to like just knock something out of the park you're like holy shit do i actually fucking know anything like you know, I was like, oh my God, like that was really, really good. And like, I thought I knew just as much as they did. And now it's like, now I don't. And now I need to go walk around the house outside because now I need to take like a <laughs> mental break. And like, so I don't melt down. Right. But like, when you come back, you're like, okay, they were doing something completely like, and, and, you know, if I had to do it, maybe I can, you know, I don't, you, we all compare ourselves to stuff. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of like that. What you said, I don't think I ever heard it like that. If you're not having a little posture syndrome, you're not challenging yourself. I don't think I've ever anybody ever heard anybody say it like that. And I kind of appreciate that because it makes you like being comfortable, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, right? Uh, you know, you have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think that's a hard challenge. And I don't know if anybody ever gets to whatever as using an absolute like whatever 100 is right like you don't think you can ever get there right i think you're always progressing towards that whatever the end is 
but I think you always have to be uncomfortable being uncomfortable. And when I hear upper management talk about things that they don't know and they have to learn it on the fly, it also makes me feel a little more comfortable about myself and like the current thing I'm doing, right? You know, I mean, working for a startup as I do right now, I hear, you know, upper management talk about stuff. Oh, I didn't know about that. I'm learning that on the fly. You're like, oh, okay. They don't know something. Whereas like you kind of put them, like, sometimes you put management on the pedestal and like, mm -hmm. they know they're the end all be all, right? They know everything. And you're like, and then when they like say they don't <laughs> and just a random conversation, like, oh, they are human, just like me, right? Yeah. Maybe we just put a lot of pressure on ourselves though. Like to your, to your analogy or what your discussion, Chris, like about putting up the fence. Like, I think a lot of times, at least for me, I'm like, should I know how to do that? Like, should I know how to like install that? Like, because it's part of like the things I think I should need to know. Right. And it, I think some of this is just kind of letting go of those expectations and that pressure that you put on yourself and just be like, okay, yeah. Like, you know, uh, deep dive into crypto just it's not my thing like I just don't do that I do vulnerability response right and like that might overlap a bit but just a bit yeah I, this sounds like kind of messed up but I, I really one of my favorite things actually is um, is presenting to senior leadership um, and I, I I've had a lot of people ask me like, why? Like, like, what is wrong with you that you enjoy doing this stuff? And um, it's totally because um, if I don't have my shit together, I, I'm going to get torn apart, right? So I see it as a challenge. I see it as a, this is an opportunity for me to prove that I know my stuff, right? If I think I know my stuff, right? Uh, uh, I know I don't know all of it, so, there, so there's also this opportunity to kind of collaborate with them to figure out this piece that I don't know, right? And figure out what path we're gonna take. But I really see it as like that crucible of um, kind of putting the things you know or the things you're like, oh, I think I know, but I guess we're gonna find out to the test, right? And I really enjoy that process. I really enjoy that being asked difficult questions and that nerves you get when you're presenting and you go, okay, does anybody have questions? And internally you're like big gulp, I'm fucked. And then, and then you wait and then somebody asks a question and, and there's that like, this is like not always on video and you're just like, oh shit. Um, okay, let me think, let me think, let me think. I love that. I don't know why, like, does that make me like, should I be like, like, do I need medication for that? I don't know, but I love it. I, I just do. I love that sensation of being tested and people asking really difficult questions. And what's incredible about that for me, at least, is that sometimes the difficult questions are the ones that are, that are like left field. Like, it's not even like when you normally think of difficult questions, I think people will classically think of really deep dive questions on whatever specific topic, right? You're like, oh, if somebody really asked me to your topic, crypto, right? Oh, if they asked me how many rounds of AES we do, like, oh, I am screwed, right? But I actually think that some of the tougher questions are the ones that are completely in left field, right? Um, I don't, I love that. I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I love that whole process of, uh, of kind of coming up with 
this is what I'm going to talk about, or this is what we need to talk about. This is the outcome that I, I am proposing. And then testing it, right? And testing it with people that I know are going to give me a really rough time with really difficult questions. Um, I, I, man, maybe that makes me sick. I don't know, but I, I love that process. <laughs> I don't think so. I think that, I think your perspective is one that more people need to hear. I think a lot of times people feel very afraid of failing when it is, when you're in those situations, going into it kind of with a collab, like a collaborative mindset and to say like, okay, this is going to be how I'm going to be able to tell like what other people are caring about. If they're asking left field questions, then that's probably giving you some sort of indication that they care about something that's in the left field and feel them. So I think that's exactly. a really awesome and really cool way to look at it. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. That's, that's, I never heard someone say it something like that before. I, I think, yeah, I mean, just to kind of on the same plane is that to me, pushing myself to talk about things when we have to give presentations to whether it's partners, customers, you know, or just out there talking about stuff that's not my research is the hardest thing to do that I, I find myself having to do. And I'm, I'm now I'm making it something like that I need to be comfortable doing. And because I think that's a hard, for me, that's the hardest thing to do. Because if you did your own research and you're talking about it, you can talk about like the book you wrote, right? When mm -hmm. someone else has done it and you have to give a blurb and answer questions on it, but just know just enough to answer those questions. Oh man, it makes me want to like poop my pants. That's how bad it is <laughs> at times, right? Like, it's just like, oh man, I really hope I don't, I don't sound like an idiot talk about this. And then you hear it and you're like, yeah, I sound like an idiot, but hopefully no one else thought I sounded like an idiot. I mean, I think the, this is like really, uh, um, uh, probably overused, right? But I, you guys, I'm sure, have heard the uh, <clears throat> the the, um, the idea that somebody asks a question, right? Or there's an email thread, and and you say, "Well, shit, I have this question." There's a there's a better than fifty percent chance. I don't know what the the like the the meme or whatever. I don't know what the percentages they say, right? But there's a very good chance that if you have the question, somebody else on that thread or in the audience has the exact same question, right? Like if, if you're I mean, obviously there's like, if I were to walk into a conference on astrophysics, like obviously my questions, the rest of the audience probably doesn't have those same questions, but it, so there's, there's kind of like a baseline we gotta, we gotta assume here. But um, I, 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 I totally operate on that where I'm like, you know, I have a question that I think is pretty stupid, but I'm gonna assume that if I have this question, somebody else on the email thread has a question. Um, and uh, I guess to one of your earlier comments, there's also like talking with management, I, I'm sure you guys have, have seen this. There's like, a, there's a way to message and to say like, I don't know what you're talking about, tell me more, right? Like there's a way to do that that doesn't make you sound like you're a complete fool. Um, and- uh, Or my last email. <laughs> <laughs> as, yeah, as per my last email, that's the response you get, right? Is as per my last email, no, you're wrong. Uh, and you're an insufferable idiot. But, <laughs> but there's like, a, I, I don't know, I think there's just a way to have those kind of conversations where you can admit that you don't know everything, be comfortable with that, mm -hmm. and try to strive to, I, I guess, to learn, right? Uh, for me, there's there's totally the sense of like, um, if there is some technical problem or topic, and I feel like I don't know it well enough, um, 
most of those things, I mean, it, earlier we talked about like recognizing that some things you just don't want to dig into, right? There's totally a sense of that. But generally, if there was something like that, I'm like, I, I want to learn more about that, right? Um, kind of recognizing that, asking intelligent questions. I don't know. I love, I love that process. I took a negotiations training class um, by Chris Voss's Black Swan Group. Um, he wrote that book, it Never Split the Difference. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a lot of tips for when you're going into any sort of conversation, negotiations being the primary rate. But part of that is to do this thing where you say something that you know is incorrect just to get somebody to correct you. And it's all part of information gathering, right? So um, if I'm giving a presentation or asking a question, I might purposely say something that's incorrect just so somebody else will correct you because you'll get information and motives and all of that sort of thing from that. And I think being good at that means that you have to swallow your pride a little bit and like be okay with with knowing that you're probably not going to look as good as you would have otherwise but overall if you can put yourself out there a little bit more and just ask the silly questions or ask the question that you know it's going to elicit an answer will could be better for you longer term right i have a senior leader who uh does that and the first time he did it to me uh, it totally worked. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because I, I was like, what are you talking about? That's the worst. People I've love correcting. Like there's right? just this internal, like you just, you want to make it right. And by doing that, you give away a ton of information in the process, right? Yeah. He was, it, it, the conversation was something like, I don't think we need to go do this thing. And this is why. And then I had a very strong gut response that said, absolutely not. We need to go do this thing. And then his response okay, that's what I wanted to hear. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, son of, I just got played. I totally just got played. Right. And I, I'm not saying I'm good at it, but uh, because there's a total, to your point, there's an art to doing that well. Right. Um, but uh, I, I've, after that interaction, I've recognized the value in that skill and being able to do that. And I've started trying to work at it. It's a difficult thing to do. Um, there is a, there is an amount uh, uh, of pride swallowing and also understanding, like you have to have the right question, you have to have the right topic, the right audience and all those kind of things. But uh, that's an incredibly useful tactic, right, to try to, uh, I personally enjoy doing that if it feels like, feet, like the feedback loop is stalled, right, mm -hmm. where it feels like you're not getting a great discussion about something. And you're trying to ideate or come up with uh, uh, solutions to some complex problem, and it feels like people just aren't engaging. I, I think this is especially common in the last eighteen months. That's a whole other topic, right? But especially when you're remote, I think that like getting people engaged and 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 methods or tactics for doing so is a, a really important thing. Um, but man, does it work well? Because you'll piss some people off, right? If you ask the right question, you'll piss some people off, and you'll you'll get you'll get your idea, <laughs> you'll get you get the ideation, and uh, you'll get all the viewpoints pretty quickly. Isn't it labeling, so work, Dina? Isn't it labeling? Well, so I was just gonna say one last thing. So I work at a large technology vendor that's remaining unnamed because, again, I'm representing myself, just like Chris. But at least in my organization, there is a a culture where if pe if everybody in a meeting is agreeing, like violently agreeing with each other on a topic, there has to be one person to dissent, even if you disagree, right? And they force you to do that because they want to make sure that you're not falling into groupthink or 
that uh, just because the conversation stalled that people aren't, aren't airing their opinions, right? So you'll typically see people who are violently agreeing with you in like one sentence, then turn around just to make sure that the conversation continues to make sure you're making the right decision. And I don't, this is the first time I've seen it. I've hopped around at a bunch of different organizations prior to this, but it's something that's really, um, A, scary, but B, <laughs> really cool too because you're given mm. that flexibility to say like oh yeah here's the dissenting opinion and then sometimes that sparks different conversations that that are good so yeah no that's awesome to hear that's awesome to hear I think that's a really good um uh, uh, kind of tactic for trying to ensure that whatever conclusion you've arrived at is uh uh the best one so to speak right however you determine answer the best Yep. So to answer your question, Kyle, so labeling. To, so um, if you're in a contentious situation and you know that there's tension, if you say, I understand, it feels like there's some tension here and you actually call it out, typically people will bring their guard down and that's called labeling. So if you're saying like, uh, Chris, it sounds like to me that you really love your job or you really hate your job, right? If you if you hate it and I say that you love it, you'll correct me, which is also part of this. But mm -hmm. if it is something that's contentious, then typically people are more willing to engage with you after you just call it out. So it's like ripping off the Band-Aid and then kind of getting, getting to work. <laughs> and that was one of those cool things that I learned in this negotiations class. It was awesome. <laughs> I mean, there's also a part of the, I mean, that's the best online training I've taken. And obviously since this whole pandemic thing was like masterclass, Chris Voss's, it was like a six hour class on the masterclass platform. Mm -hmm. Obviously Dina had the whole slew of the whole class from Black Swan, but I, I took like the six hour one. I, I took, that was, I got like a legal pad and I was taking notes. Like I was back and <laughs> like, and it was like, I used it like in 2020 when I was interviewing a bunch of different places, I used like some of those tactics to like, you know, I had it open like in on like a little thing, like, you know, as they're asking me questions, I'm like, oh, that's, you know, sounds like this place is really great to work for, but there has, you know, I, I was, I was like reading off the thing, you know what I mean? Like labeling sounds like, feels like, right. Like all these things and it, it works at times and I've done it to my colleagues. So if anybody are listening this far in the podcast, I do, no, you know, you're getting played all the time. All of my colleagues all took the training and we all do it to each other now, but all of our <laughs> meetings are now very fast. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we've been talking a lot about work and a bunch of other things. I think all of us love computers, but I think that we also have other hobbies. So Chris, we know that you enjoy drinking beer. <laughs> what other things do you like to do in your spare time? What are you passionate about? Uh, that, that's a good question. Um, I have always had, uh, I guess, uh, I, I've always been attracted to hobbies that have a high skill ceiling and um, according to my wife, probably a high financial cost associated with entry to said uh, hobby. Um, and uh, I, so currently um, my hobbies, I, I do, uh, I used to race bikes before I, I got into this whole business. Uh, I used to race bicycles. So I still ride bikes a fair amount. Um, I'm gonna try to take a swing at some uh, big endurance uh, mountain bike races next year. So that's kind of a in the background kind of wellness fitness hobby. Um, I, uh, I also 
uh, fly fish quite a lot. Uh, living in Colorado, um, that's a, a pretty great outdoor activity. Um, do you do it for food or fun or both? Um, I would say primarily fun, um, but uh, I also do do it for food occasionally. Um, out, out west here in Colorado, uh, uh, brook trout are sort of considered a quasi-invasive species. They're not officially an invasive species, but um, they'll basically take over any other water that they're in. So all the native trout population gets pushed out. So, um, so the, the, uh, the, the keep limit on brook trout is higher than other normal like rainbow or brown trout. Um, so from time to time, uh, we will keep some brook trout uh, just because they are a real kind of menace, right? If you, if you want native fish in a specific chunk of water, um, brook trout are not the solution. Um, and I guess it doesn't hurt that they are pretty delicious tasting. Um, apologies to any vegan uh, podcast listeners. Um, but, but fly fishing is definitely one of those high skill ceiling. Um, uh, I mean, you could do it for, your, for a lifetime and you're not going to get, like, how do you even define better, right? Is better having a better casting action? Is better catching more fish? Um, I, I don't even really know how you define it, right? So I, I enjoy it because I'm, I'm quite a competitive person by nature. And it's, it, uh, there is such a thing as competitive fishing, but I don't have any intentions of taking it up. So, so fishing is a way to get outside in a non-competitive manner um, that I really enjoy. And uh, in Colorado, it's, it's quite pretty out here, so that doesn't hurt uh, uh, either. Um, in addition to that, uh, I used to race a lot of, well, I guess I still technically do, but I don't because of COVID. Um, I uh, race radio controlled cars, which is kind of an interesting hobby. Uh, there's a, uh, um, I guess the summary on that would probably be that they're faster than you think. And the competition is probably closer than you think if you're not familiar with uh, radio controlled cars. Um, so that used to be a hobby. That's another high, high skill ceiling, um, fairly significant financial outlay involved. Um, the gas, do you use gas powered ones? Uh, I raced electric. So okay. uh, used a, a lithium polymer battery. Um, so the car, for reference, the, the class that I enjoyed racing the most or the cars that I enjoyed racing the most are probably about a foot long uh, and um, indoors on a hundred foot straightaway, which is the size of most of the tracks, um, they would top speed probably be going 50 to 55 miles an hour. Whew. So um, in terms of scale speed, your, your driver, if it was one-to-one -one scale, your driver would be dead basically because of, of how fast and the, the cornering force is involved. Um, so I don't know. I, I really enjoy that. It's like, I don't know why I enjoyed it. I think I've always enjoyed auto racing and kind of the engineering mechanical aspects of it, of, of car design and things like that. And then uh, um, racing full scale cars is, uh, there's a lot of financial outlay there and you're not going to make money at it. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's it, it, the RC stuff is maybe a way to uh, uh, still understand some of the vehicle dynamic stuff without maybe the uh, cost or space associated with having like a Miata in your garage or something. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, um, obvious questions. It, since you live, you mentioned you live in Colorado. I mean, do you shred the NAR at all? You know, you getting out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my, my, uh, uh, my and we were talking about Vermont earlier too, so you could do it in two different places. 
Yeah, I, I guess maybe this is a, a Chris being too straight-laced. I also went to university in British Columbia, Canada. So I, oh. I guess my my understanding of shred the gnar, quote-unquote, from my mountain bike circles would just be mountain biking. Maybe some uh, 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 imbibing of uh, certain green plants, but... I, 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 I mean, snow. You get out there, you're skiing, you're snowboarding. Oh, no, I don't do snow. <laughs> there's no three, three of the places that have some of the best skiing in the world but for our no. listeners we're all on video right now and i just watched chris's face change from a huge smile to like this sternness of the no. snow no i like my knees man my knees they work great and i like my knees and i like my acls and i like all that stuff so no, I don't fuck with snow, man. I just don't, I don't do that. Absolutely not. This is interesting though, because I guess this, today what I've learned is that I clearly don't know. I would have expected something about pow, not gnar. So clearly I, this is how much or how little I know about snow is I don't even know the right terms to use, right? I thought you were talking about like smoking weed and riding mountain bikes. Clearly I am in fucking- I mean, those, I guess those would all been fair too. But yeah, when you didn't know what I was talking about, I was like, maybe he doesn't actually hit the slopes no is that another that one makes more sense to me hit the slope it's okay i I don't either (laughs) but we do go out to call we do go out to colorado every year kyle does love skiing and we spend we've spent a lot of time in colorado it's a beautiful state we actually got engaged there nice fun fact whereabouts in this we got engaged at the maroon bells outside aspen yeah Yeah, very pretty very pretty a little cliche but sick photo that that would be a great photo totally it was agree. a great photo totally yeah. <laughs> so it's probably one of my favorite photos i've ever taken well you know the tripod took it but yeah it was still taken um the, the only other hobby that i was going to share is uh um it since all the covid stuff at the beginning of last year um i started playing the mandolin more i i originally started playing it probably a decade ago 12 years ago something in that stretch and um I guess like had a kid started playing the mandolin in lockdown because I was like, I don't know what else to do. And um, I, I've uh, uh, I started playing the mandolin quite a lot. Um, and I enjoy that. It's a it's a part of my uh, brain that I don't use at work like at all. I don't use it at all. Um, like this create this weird like creative like, no, I don't do that um, part part of my brain. Um, and I, it makes me uncomfortable. It's very similar to the earlier discussion, right? It makes me really uncomfortable because I'm like, I, I don't feel at home. I don't feel like this is something that comes naturally to me. I have to really, really work at it, right? And um, I'm not good at it, but I really enjoy it, right? Um, are you guys familiar with the mandolin? Like, do you, you know what it is? Yeah, I know what it is, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, I don't know. Some people think of it as a like a kitchen implement, right? So that's oh, a very dangerous is, right? kitchen implement. Yeah, a very very dangerous kitchen implement. Lose lose your fingertips on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, is that a thing that you guys have encountered? Is kind of technology professionals taking up creative uh, hobbies? I mean, I do uh, jujitsu on the side. I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast re- religiously hates me talking about it, but it's what I do. That's like it's my, you know, get away from you know, use creative, like, you know, obviously it's a physical sport. So, but it's like, you're going against people of different sizes, shapes and all that stuff. Right. Like I'm not mm-hmm. a small guy myself, but getting thrown around by someone 60 pounds heavier than me, like, you know, 
just all the physics behind it and all the other you know, stuff, like using parts of my mind I don't use. And you go there, you do it. Like you might be pissed off at work, but you get there, you get to like, you know, all the endorphins running, you leave there. And I, I forgot what I was even mad about when I walked in the door. Right. So that's yep. the benefit of that stuff. Right. And some people get that from doing all the other stores. What about you, Dina? I garden. I am very invested in gardening. There is something about planting a seed and seeing it from like beginning to end. So I've been doing that for about seven or eight years now. I also have just a ton of houseplants everywhere because I love it. It It is completely soothing to me. I, I do notice though, at least in the cybersecurity infosec community, there are like three big kind of groups of folks. You have the people that like biking, people that like gardening and people that like jujitsu and like they're all kind of <laughs> intertwined, but it's very interesting. When you first started saying expensive hobbies, I was like, I wonder if he's going to say biking. And then you were like biking, <laughs> yep. but it's, it's one of those things. I think it's, it's similar to jujitsu and it's similar to those sorts of things that you're, you're thinking it's physical. Um, it's challenging you in a different way. And then of course, mandolin. I love that. I think that's super cool. And don't sell yourself short, self short, Dina. Dina has this knack to take sad plants and make them blossom again. Like the, anybody, oh, the, yeah. that plant section from Lowe's, I can't let her go into. Otherwise, we come home with like six different plants that will just flourish <laughs> and be like trees by like the end of like month three. And you're like, it's I'm, true. Like, I'm fine with it. Like, I don't, you know, plants in the house is something I grew up with, but that's just like, She's like, I, I came home with these three. These, these were all in the sad plant section. They were like $3 each, you know? And then next thing you know, it's like this flourishing tree structure outside ends up. You're like, wow, you know? So. Yeah, I don't have I that do. skill, that's for sure. No, I don't. I love it. I love it. Get, bring me your sad plants. I will revive them. I also like coach my friends through reviving their sad plants. My friend Allison had a very sad fiddle leaf fig that we got back to blooming <laughs> great stuff so but can you when do I in colorado under water restrictions there's your real question that's a good question <laughs> i would like to be challenged with that though so perhaps i might simulate <laughs> that and see what i can come up with i but overall i i love um anything like i i like composting and just making yeah. my soil really great. Like I'm all about it. What, when yeah. I, when I eventually vacate tech, I want to like run an animal sanctuary for, um, like all animals, including livestock and like garden. <laughs> That's my oh, goal. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, at some point we decided that, um, we were going to go to, uh, to kind of like, is it called zero scape? Like we weren't going to have a yard anymore, like a lawn mm -hmm. anymore. Monocultures uh, are bad. Yeah. It, it, and I mean, here it's tough. Like we don't, mm -hmm. um, it, like for people who haven't been to Colorado, right. Most people, when they think of Colorado, they think of Aspen, they think of Telluride, they think of like Vail, they think of high, altitude ski towns that get a lot of snow things of that nature right and even in the summer get a lot of thunderstorms right front range colorado is not those places right front range colorado um we get very little rain very very little rain we get very very little snow the weather here is gorgeous basically year round but i didn't say that in public what i said in public is the weather is shitty you shouldn't come here right <laughs> but like, it, so I, I think the statistic I've heard is that 
uh, 80% of the people live east of the continental divide, but 20% of the rainfall or precipitation is on the east of the continental divide flipped for the Western slopes. So 80% of the precipitation is on Western slopes, 20% of the people. So, I mean, water is a pretty big, uh, uh, not to be political, but water is a pretty big deal here, right? Yeah. So when we decided that we wanted to shift to not water lawn and plants that much, um, as soon as we like made that decision, uh, our, our like, uh, uh, my property just went to shit because I I was like, well, we're going to take, we're going to tear the sod out. I'm not fucking around with this anymore. I right? hate lawns. So, <laughs> so apologies to my neighbors who have had to witness my like burnt hay, uh, uh, yard and the, the garden that's, uh, uh, nasty, but, uh, it's, we're doing it for a reason. I haven't explained yeah. that reason to you, but there is a reason. Um, so I, I, I don't know. It's a, uh, uh, growing, like I said, BC, I went to university out there. There's a different ecosystem with regards to, uh, the rainforest fauna, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, when I first moved to Colorado, I was in for, for quite a shock with regards to what, what grows easily here, what doesn't grow easily, how much rainfall is there, how little rainfall. Um, but Hey, I enjoy living here. That's, that's all that matters. That's what yeah. Well, Chris, we're at that magic time point where, you know, we like to close it down, but I always like to throw it back over to you. Like, how can people get a hold of you? They want to reach out and talk to you about biking, mandolin, <laughs> race cars, your pet peeves. Or if you don't ever mail. want to be. <laughs> or if you don't want to be contacted, that's also fine. Like, but if you didn't, um, how can they get a hold of you or not get a hold of you? Send yes, a letter to PO box. <laughs> Just yeah, I have, this, uh, I have this carrier pigeon who's named Speckled Speckled Jim. So if you could just uh, use a carrier pigeon, that would be uh, uh, pretty nifty. Um, so I, we already established I, I don't use Twitter, um, but uh, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm just Chris Hillier at LinkedIn. Uh, I don't know how many of, the, of me there are. There's probably quite a few of us, uh, but you can look for the one in, in Fort Collins and I'll give Kyle a link to the actual profile if you're so inclined. And then my, uh, my email is just my name at gmail.com. So you can reach me at chrishillier at gmail.com. Um, if you want to buy Chris Hillier at gmail.com, cause your name is also Chris Hillier, then you better offer me more than $70 Canadian. Cause that's what the last guy offered me and I rejected it. So you better up your you heard it here you first. Email. You heard it here first. At least one Bitcoin. That's what I heard. At least one. <laughs> yeah. I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> Turn it over. Well, as like, we always like to shut down shop, uh, here, uh, you know, with our empty glasses and, uh, Stay thirsty, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.